All right. Well, I'm very excited today to welcome Ali Abdal to the podcast. And we are going to talk about uh, his book that is just coming out, uh, Feel Good Productivity. But Ali, before we do that, first of all, thank you so much for taking some time to join me. Thank you, for, thank you so much for having me. This is really cool. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think it would be helpful to start by giving you a chance to kind of introduce yourself, tell uh, this audience, you know, they may be familiar with some of your work, but I, I'd love to hear kind of from you. How do you describe yourself? Yeah, great question. Um, so hello, everyone. If, we, if, you've, if we've not met before, my name is Ali. I'm a medical doctor turned entrepreneur and now productivity expert, weirdly. So I started a YouTube channel seven years ago when I was in med school in Cambridge in the UK. And then I practiced full-time as a doctor for two years. Um, some of that was during the pandemic, some of it wasn't. And after two years of practicing as a doctor, my YouTube channel as a side hustle had grown to nearly a million subscribers. And so during the pandemic, I thought I'd take a break from medicine. I was intending to go to Australia to do some emergency medicine, but then Australia closed their borders. And so in a weird string of circumstances, I ended up being a full-time YouTuber somewhat accidentally. And this channel, which I'd started as a side hustle to help people get into med school, suddenly blew up during the pandemic to be this like productivity, passive income, side hustles, entrepreneurship thing. And then over time, I sort of built a team around it, built a business around it. And now I've kind of gone full time on the entrepreneur thing. And I've sort of left medicine behind me. It's there as an option if I want to go back. But now that I've tasted the freedom of entrepreneurship, I don't think I'm going to go back to, to medicine. And so now, over the last three years, I've been, been writing this book. No, sorry. So anyone who heard you just describe that might have noticed that you do you do have a little bit of an accent, right? You are based in the UK. And I just wanted to have you briefly explain, because anyone who's listening to this in the United States and heard like you were a doctor, <laughs> and then you decided to become a YouTuber, I feel like that's a very, that, that deserves a little bit of context, because becoming a doctor in the UK is, I think, a little bit different than becoming a doctor here yeah, in the United States. Yeah, it's a bit different. So in the UK, the way it works is you get straight into medical school from high school. So at the age of 18, you start medical school and you graduate at the age of 24. So six years of med school and then you graduate and then you're officially a doctor. Now you do two years of kind of uh, foundation years, which is sort of like the US intern years, kind of. And then after those two years of doing a bit of everything, you decide what to specialize in. And that's where you join a residency program. So I did my first two, I guess, intern years where I was rotating around different specialties. I did psychiatry, I did obstetrics and gynecology, I did some emergency medicine, did some acute medicine, cardiology, all that kind of fun stuff. And after the end of that two years, I decided I was going to take a break before going into a residency program. I was going to go for emergency medicine, but then this YouTube channel blew up and now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and people who might watch your YouTube channel now, my guess is that most of the uh, millions of people who are currently watching it have have no context for the videos that were helping people get into medical school, right? At this point, it's a very different audience. It's a very different audience, yeah. Like I've been doing YouTube now for six and a half years. And so the videos in the early days were helping people get into med school, kind of as a content marketing driver for a business that I used to run in, in university, which was helping people get into med school. Uh, but then over time, it sort of became more general and people just kept on asking me, hey, how are you so productive? How do you study? Tell us what, what you've got in your backpack. Tell us how you use your iPad. We see you using your iPad all the time. And I just started making videos about the things that people wanted to hear about. And eventually it's ended up with, I think we're going to hit 5 million subscribers this week. And it's just completely insane. I've got 13 full-time team members around it. And it's just become this thing that I had no idea it would be when, when I first started seven years ago. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about the book in a second because it's actually very good. I am a productivity nerd, which I don't know if that's good or bad because, you know, there's a sort of a tendency there to spend more time thinking about ways to be more productive as opposed to just like being more productive. But we'll get to that in a second. I am curious because I think, you know, our audience are entrepreneurs. They are small business owners and leaders, kind of people who are organizing teams and, and setting vision for their teams. And, and obviously, the last couple of years have been a very interesting experience for people who are trying to lead businesses. And I just was, as you were describing kind of your journey, it occurs to me, and I would just kind of love to hear your feedback on this, that in some ways, you kind of started a YouTube channel, or at least you started building this current audience at a very ideal time right? In in that you were offering content to people, and I'm talking specifically about sort of the side hustle, you, you described it that way, at a time when that was a thing everyone was trying to figure out, right? Everyone was trying to figure out, like, if, if I can't go to the office anymore, and I'm going to work from home, how do I maximize my limited resources? And I, I would just be interested in like what you think about that, that timing piece, because I want to get to then the, the timing piece of this book. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I got so lucky with the timing. You know, the pandemic was obviously a terrible thing for a lot of people, but it was a great thing for a lot of YouTubers because suddenly people were spending 10 times as much time on YouTube as they normally would. And in particular for educational channels like mine, I'd been making videos about productivity. Everyone wanted to be productive during the pandemic. I was making videos about how to start a business and how to build passive income because I'd been doing that for years. And suddenly those videos started to get traction. I was like, whoa, my mind was blown. Um, I made a video talking about how much money I earn as a doctor compared to as a YouTuber. And that video blew up and people were like, oh my God, I can't believe he's making this much money online. And I think also because at the time, and this was like 2020, I was very transparent about how much money I earn on YouTube and I still am. And a lot of entrepreneurs love that because most people are not transparent about how specifically they are making the money. So something about the timing of that really seemed to hit. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a big lucky break that I had in the, in the, in the pandemic. So as you are growing this YouTube channel, both in terms of the amount of content you're putting out and the number of subscribers you have and your team, at some point along the way, you thought, I should write a book. Like, tell me about how, how you make that leap. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of weird. Like, just uh, like on, on the week that I took a break from medicine full time, because I was going to go to Australia, but then I couldn't. And so I, I didn't have like a, a continuing like place in a residency program because I was going to go to Australia. So I, I found myself with all this, all this free time. And I, initially I was thinking, what am I going to do with all this free time? But as anyone who's an entrepreneur know, knows, when you find yourself with free time, you fill it up with other things that you, that you think will help you grow your business. And so I ended up working like way more hours than I was even when I was working as a doctor because it was my own thing. And I had this, that whole drive of like, this is my thing, I'm working on it. But that week that I took a break from medicine, I got an email from an editor at Penguin. And obviously I'd heard of Penguin, like the world's biggest publisher. And he was like, hey, I've been checking out your YouTube channel. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, huh, that's interesting. That's serendipitous timing. Because I'd been thinking about at some point I'd like to write a book. And then this opportunity landed in my lap because this guy, Rowan from Penguin, liked my YouTube channel. And so we started working together. And it's now three and a bit years since I got that email. And it's, it's taken three years to put the book together. So <laughs> it sort of started based on a cold email from, uh, from Penguin. Okay, so talk for just a second, if you don't mind. Because I think sometimes, especially when it comes to books, you know, if you are... A consumer and you you you're like oh i'm watching this channel and the guy has a book great and in most people's mind the first time they hear about something is the first time it existed in the world but that's almost never true right like you writing a book didn't happen overnight not only did it take a period of time when someone contacted you but 
writing a book is hard. Like I write 1500 words every single day and they just all go out into the internet. Right. But they're not wow. accumulating into a book. Right. And so I, as a professional writer, I look at a book and I'm like, and this is not, this is not a light book, which is a compliment by the way. Like there was a lot that went into this, both in terms of the theory and the practice of it. And so how, you know, you were not, you, you may have had some free time on your hands, but like you were still producing a lot of other stuff and growing a team. How did you prioritize that? Because I really think it kind of gets to the thesis of how to become productive and, and how to organize that in a way where you're doing the things that you love without mm -hmm. sort of that burden and that mental overhead of, of, of worrying about how you're going to organize all of that. Mate, that was so much mental, over, uh, so much mental overhead. <laughs> um, it, like as, as anyone who's listening, who is an entrepreneur or, I mean, every, everyone listening is busy in, in different ways. Like writing, writing a book is one of those projects that in a dream world, yes, you would take three months off. You would go to an Island in a cabin in the woods or whatever. And you just like write the thing. Realistically, no one has the time to do that in their life. And even professional, especially professional writers do whatever they can to avoid writing. So for a lot of this three-year process, I did whatever I could to not write. And sometimes I'd be, you know, I'd have a team meeting and I'm saying to my team, I'm like, guys, yeah, you know, it's just so, it's been so hard to find the time to do, to, to write this book. And they'd be like, dude, you literally have one job. All you have to do is write this bloody book and just make, make a video every other week rather than every week. Like what's stopping you from writing the book? And I'm like, oh, but the calendar's so busy and I've got all these meetings. And they're like, what the hell is the point of all these meetings? Your job is to write the book. Right. So it took a lot of like push from my team to be like, no, just sit down and write the bloody thing. Cause I did, I was like, as soon as it came to time to time to write, I would find a reason to make another YouTube video or to launch another course or to work on the business or to look at our OKRs or to like look at our dashboards and make sure that the analytics are feeding into the bloody Google sheet. Nice. Anything I could do to avoid writing. But now that I've been through the process once, I feel like the next book will be much more streamlined because I now kind of understand the strategy it takes to write a book. Um, but it was it was a lot of back and forth along the way. Yeah. So how do you think about, okay, because it feels like uh, producing a video every week requires a specific type of uh, productivity or a, a specific type of systems, a specific type of processes. Writing a book is a very, very different thing. And how do you think about those two things differently? Or what did you, after you just described the possibility yeah. of writing a second book, you know, what were the things you took away from the process of doing the first one and how, like, in terms of how that's different? Because I yeah. feel like what a lot of people are good at, you kind of described it. People are really good at getting excited about a thing for a short period of time. And they're good. They're really excited about it for six weeks. And then they look for the next thing that will be exciting for six weeks. But writing a book's not like that, but also neither is building a company right? Like the company you have today didn't happen in six weeks. It happened over six years. So I'm just curious how you think about those things differently. Yeah. So I think writing a book, is, so making videos is way easier than writing a book. The, and I didn't realize this at the, when, I, when I got started. When I got started, I was like, I type pretty fast. I've got a, I've got, I've got a typing speed of 156 words per minute. Um, I can probably write 2000 words a day. And that's 30 days is 60,000 words. That's a whole book. Easy. I'll do it in 30 days. <laughs> and I did it for like day one, day two, day three, day four. And on day five, I realized I've done 8,000 words and I have nothing more to say. Like I've literally said everything that's already in my head. And I was like, shit, I have another 52,000, 57,000 words to go. <laughs> and that was when I realized, oh, writing a book is very different because I, I now have to do all this research. And I'd spent like months and months trawling through scientific papers. And as you know, with, with, I think with, with making a video, I'm, I can just get a few talking points and I can just riff. 
And if I make a few leaps of logic or something doesn't quite make sense, it's fine. No one cares because it's a video, it's spoken word. But when you're writing shit down, that's when it has to be tight. And that's when like any holes in the argument are really obvious because they're written down. And so the process of writing the book, a lot of it was information gathering and research with a massive outlining stage. But then there was also a lot of fact checking and a lot of making sure that the argument we were making was actually watertight, which I, I could have I could have gotten away. I, I have been getting away with dodgy reasoning in videos for the last seven years. But you cannot get away with dodgy reasoning when, when writing a book that has then three editors looking at it and like complaining right. about every little thing that's wrong. Right. Well, and you know, some, so I had, well, whatever. The short version of this is like I have started writing a book. That's not my point, except that someone gave me this. I'm like, yeah, I write couple thousand words every you know i write whatever ten thousand words a week writing a book shouldn't be that big of a deal i just will write fewer of them for my column and more of them for a book except for like the same thing it's like it's almost impossible i could get to a point i have like about twenty two thousand words written and i have zero more words to write but anyway some a uh, good friend of mine said here's the difference writing every day for your column which is maybe similar to writing a script for a youtube video is like going yeah. to an airbnb that you're going to stay at for a week right you only have to enjoy that place for a week. And if it turned out to not be your favorite place in the world, you just never go back. But what you're trying to do is buy a house and you're going to live there for 15 years. And so the the commitment is totally different, right? And you buy a house and now you're responsible for it. And so it's like living into those words for a long period of time. And and I, I can resonate with that because it is, it's a totally different beast altogether. Yeah. I'm, I'm very impressed by authors who seem to use the same strategies for their blog posts as they do for their books. So Morgan Housel, for example, for The Psychology of Money and for his, his latest book, Nothing Changes, I can't remember the title. He realized that actually he's really good at writing blog posts. He'd written like a thousand blog posts. So he just turned, he, he just wrote a book as if it was 20 different blog posts. Yeah. And it was really good. And I was like, oh, he's, he's using this, this, the techniques he's already built. And I kind of, I, that really taught me that for the next book, what I'm going to do, here's, here's, here's my approach. And I'd, I'd love to get your feedback on this. But what I want to do is, it's probably going to, it might be a book about fitness, maybe, maybe like productive fitness or feel good fitness, something like that. I want to break it down into, I want to know what the title is and the concept is like before I worry about anything else. And I want that, I want to know what are the titles of all the chapters. And I want to treat, I want to treat each chapter as if it's an individual YouTube video because yeah. I know how to make YouTube videos. Yeah. And then the research process that goes into the videos, I'm hoping will help inform the book. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, especially when your brain already works that way, you know, having, yeah, because it, it is. It's so much easier to tackle 20 ideas that all tie together as one book as opposed to one book that I now have to break down into 20 pieces and make it make sense. Yeah, the whole that's thing. right. So, so let's talk about the book that you did write, uh, Feel Good Productivity. And first of all, I, I love the idea. I love the concept. And the reason I love it is because, I mean, let's be honest, most people don't think about productivity as a thing that makes them feel good. And because, you know, I had a job when I was a kid, I worked at a, at a warehouse, like a distribution center for this retail store that's real popular here in the Midwest. And you were get, you would be given these like tickets and it had all the things on it you had to go and pull off of the shelves and you were literally timed. And any chance of advancement or any increases in your pay were entirely based on what your average pull time was. That was how they measured your productivity, right? So you couldn't even stop in between runs to like take a break because that would lower your average time. And so that was what productivity is for a lot of people. It's like I have to do the most amount of things with the fewest resources and in the least amount of time. But this book is very different than that, right? And I think that if I, I think it's appealing to people. Because the things that you do with your time should feel good. 
But at the same time, I, I wonder if some people are going to look at this and go, yeah, productivity has never felt good for me. So I want you to, first of all, kind of explain the premise of the book. And then I want you to talk directly to those people and explain to them why after they read through this book, they can think differently about it. Yeah. Oh, great question. So the issue with like the old school way of thinking about productivity is that productivity is in, in the old school is seen as like efficiency. It's like cranking out the more widgets in the same amount of time or something to that effect. And in the past, in the sort of the era of factories, the industrial revolution, all that mattered was how many widgets is your factory cranking out and people would get paid and stuff based on that. In the modern day, very few of us have jobs where our job is to crank out widgets and the only way to, I don't know, increase the efficiency of the factory is to just crank out more widgets. We're all knowledge workers here. We're all doing creative things that involve using our brain, that involve sort of synthesizing sources from multiple different ways, working on projects that are maybe not quite explicitly defined. Productivity is now a very different thing to what it was in the era of factories where all we were doing was cranking out widgets. And so in order for us to be more productive, we can't just use the same techniques that were invented for the Industrial Revolution and just try and, I don't know, hammer the workers harder or give them fewer breaks or like, I don't know, put a point scoring system so that they can't take enough toilet breaks. Otherwise, they're going to get like their, their, their pay docked. All of those things don't really work anymore. And the studies that have been done on productivity in the modern world also show that. Like extrinsic motivators like, oh, we'll pay you extra money if you do more stuff. Actually decreases productivity rather than increasing it when it comes to creative things. And so what we need to do is figure out like what is actually going to be our approach to productivity. And there's some really cool uh, research um, in the field of positive psychology about how feeling good and experiencing positive emotions in your work is one of the key secrets to being more productive, being more creative, being less stressed, being more energized. Because a lot of us have had that feeling where, you know, Time management only gets you so far. You can only manage your time so much as like, but you know, as, as I found when working as a doctor full time, I'd get home from work and I would have time. I'd have a few hours in the evening, but I just wouldn't have the energy. I'd be, I'd be so drained after the stuff that I was doing in the day job that I just wouldn't have the energy to give to the other important things in my life. And so what I tried to figure out when it came to the book and when it came to my own personal productivity is how do I get more of this energy? How do I get home from work feeling energized rather than drained? And I realized that if I can find a way to make my work feel good, if I can find a way to make it fun, make it feel more like an adventure, make it feel more enjoyable, I generate energy and I'm more productive and I'm more creative and I'm less stressed and just everything in my life is better. And so this core thesis of the book really, and that's why the title is Feel Good Productivity, it's, it's, it's called Feel Good Productivity because productivity can and should feel good. But it's also called Feel Good Productivity because feeling good is actually the way to become more productive. Whereas trying to coerce yourself, trying to use grit and willpower and discipline and all these negative emotions to get yourself to do something, that only works for so long before you burn out. But if you're feeling good about something, you can then do that thing forever. Yeah. So now you talked about burnout. And I actually, it's funny because I was going to ask you about this anyway. So I had, you tell the story in the book about having a conversation with your mom, right? And you, you said... Um, I was familiar with the idea of burnout, but I never thought that the word would apply to me. I wasn't working hard to make ends meet. I wasn't even doing anything particularly intense. What right did I have to feel burned out? But you said that your mom said to you, I, if I'm reading this correctly, that burnout isn't just a thing that happens to overworked people in stressful jobs. It can happen to anyone when work stops feeling meaningful. Like that feels like a pretty big distinction. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So previously, when I thought about burnout, I was like, well, you know, I, I just make YouTube videos. I'm just like, uh, you know, it's, it's not like I'm in the coal mines 
you know, trying to get this coal out and like with no light and uh, so what, what right do I have feel, what, what right do I have to feel burned out? And this was like, it was weirdly after I left medicine, I'd taken a break from medicine to do YouTube and entrepreneurship full time. And I was more burned out by that than I ever was when I worked as a doctor, because when you don't have a nine to five job, when you don't have an end time, all of life becomes the pursuit of more. It's like, I could always work more hours to grow my business. I could always work more hours to read another business book or apply another management principle or make another YouTube video. It sort of became endless. And I wasn't taking breaks. I wasn't taking care of my health. I wasn't conserving my energy. I wasn't sleeping well. And it, and it was kind of fun because I was like grinding. I was like, yeah, I'm growing my business. But I then burned myself out. And in, in that moment, for, the, for that period of a couple of weeks, I started feeling like, and I, I, I feel some listeners might be able to relate to this, this feeling like, what, what's even the point? Like, why am I even doing this? Am I, am I really just like spending my life making YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video? Am I really just going to keep on doing this? Like, what's the point? And I realized after researching burnout that that is one of the classic symptoms of burnout with this feeling like this feeling of apathy, this feeling like your work lacks meaning. And the solution, as I found, was take more breaks, conserve energy. It's like this, the simple stuff that we all know, but we fail to do. And it was actually a few, a few months ago, I was recording the audiobook for the book. And those final three chapters, which were about burnout, as I was reading them, I was like, damn, I should really take my own advice because with all this craziness for like book promotion, I found myself approaching that edge where it started to feel all meaningless. And I know that whenever I get to that point, that's not a good place to be. And so I try and take a vacation, take a few breaks, like try not, try and try not to take it so seriously and just approach the process with a bit more lightness and ease. And I find that always helps. Yeah. So I think that's really helpful, especially because there are a lot of people over the fat burnout was easy to find over the last few years. And even because things were going really well, in some cases, you described that it was a great time to grow a YouTube channel. The same thing was true for a lot of other creators, but running at that pace is only sustainable for so long. There are other people who I think may hear this and may look at the book or may, may hear this interview and think to themselves like, they don't have the luxury of just doing what feels good. And I understand that you're not saying only do what feels good. Like that's not necessarily the premise of this book, but some people may hear it that way. And they may think to themselves, like, I don't, I don't have that luxury. I have kids and a mortgage and I have a job and a boss. And if I quit my job, like, you know, in the United States, you quit your job, you lose your health care. There are all of these considerations and maybe a more fair way of saying it is that they don't feel as though they have that freedom to pursue productivity based on the things that help them to feel good. And I would just, I would love to hear what you would say directly to those people, because I believe that part of that feel, well, the feeling is real, but there's Mm. obviously a thought pattern that leads to that feeling. And maybe that's the area where this book can help. Yeah. Amazing. So this whole idea, this whole idea of feel good productivity, the point is not only do what feels good. That is absolutely not the point. Like there is, there, there are some books out there that will tell you to quit your job and follow your passion and only do the things that feel good. That is A, unsustainable. B, it never happens. C, you have to be really rich to even entertain that. And D, generally anything you do for work stops feeling good after a while. So like even the people that are doing, I'm doing what I love, making YouTube videos, and it feels like work (laughs) quite a lot of the time. Um, So the goal is not only do what feels good. The goal is instead flipping that. It's, It's like, let me find a way to feel good about what I am doing. And if anyone's like, well, I've got a job, I've got a mortgage, I've got kids, I can't, I can't possibly feel good about my work. That is a bullshit story that you are telling yourself. If you, if you really asked yourself, how could I make, how could I encourage myself? Uh, what could I possibly do to just have maybe even 10% more fun in my day job? 
How could I show up with just a little bit more energy for my kids? How can I approach my business with just a little bit more lightness and ease? You can probably find solutions to that problem. It's just that most of us don't think that way. One post-it note I used to have on my computer monitor before I started traveling was, it was just like a little post-it note underneath my, like my screen. And it said, what would this look like if it were fun? What would this look like if it were fun? And I would see that note randomly, sometimes in the day. And you know how the mind kind of like blocks out things that, you, that are always in your environment. But occasionally I'd, like, I'd, I'd read that. I'm like, what would this look like if it were fun? And I would think, oh yeah, I guess this thing I'm doing right now, if, if it were more fun, Maybe I'd have some music in the background. Maybe I'd actually get up and do a bit of a stretch. Maybe I'd stop taking it so seriously because it's just a freaking PowerPoint presentation after all. Maybe I'd just inject some humor into it. Maybe I'd say I'd go to the local coffee shop because actually I can work from my laptop. And maybe I'd you know, get myself a nice little coffee because that'll be a change of scenery. Maybe I'll go down to the park. Maybe I'll say, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll get my, I don't know, friends together and we'll join for a co-working session over Zoom or in person. There are loads of ways that we can find to make the things that we are already doing just that little bit more enjoyable. And what we'll find is that we're happier, we, we generate more energy as a result of them, we're less stressed, and we are more productive and more creative. It's like all of the good things happen when we can find a way to feel good about what we're doing. I'm not saying you have to quit your job and find things that feel good. I'm saying find a way to make whatever you're already doing feel just that little bit better. Yeah, I like, I like that because a lot of people think that their circumstances determine their feelings right? But really, it's your thoughts that determine your feelings. And the reality is you get a choice about what you think about your circumstances, right? So you do get a choice. Because I can imagine some people hearing what you said about like, the goal is to make the things you're doing, like decide to enjoy more the things that you're doing, not to pursue only things that you intrinsically enjoy. And so that is a decision that everyone can make. Some people will hear that and think like, oh, but you don't know my boss or my job. And I think what I hear you saying is, but you still have a choice like to change the way you look at the situation, change the way that you perceive the circumstances you have around you. Or like in some cases, maybe you do need to change your circumstances, right? Nobody says you have to work for a terrible boss. Yeah, that's exactly my approach. I think it's like there are some, if your circumstances are so goddamn terrible that you think that like, there's no way anyone in, in this position could have fun. Ask yourself, do you have any coworkers who are in the same circumstances and are enjoying it a bit more than you? If the answer is yes, they're clearly doing something that you're not. If the answer is no, and, and you have also tried everything, then okay, maybe it's time to quit the job because you know, life's too short to do what you what to, to do things that make you absolutely miserable. And in that context, there will always be people who enjoy playing the victim. There's always, there's always going to be people who are like, oh, well, you don't get it. Like, easy for you to say. Like, you, can, you can always find excuses to stay in the same situation that you're in. But most people who are, you know, living a, what they would themselves de deem to be a successful life have found a way to take control of the circumstances and could, or, or, or at the very least take control of the story that they're telling themselves about those circumstances. And this is why I really like stoicism. I really like kind of reading... Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and all these like Stoics from back in the day because they dis they realized this. They realized that our emotions are not dictated by circumstances, but by the story we tell ourselves about the circumstances. And so in a way, all roads lead to that, that we are what we think. <laughs> we can, in fact, control our life and control our emotions based on how we feel about them and how we think. Um, but I, I totally get that for a lot of people, that is an unpalatable suggestion because it, everyone loves blaming someone else we all love like putting the blame for our unhappiness or our lack of enjoyment in our job on the system or the government or the school or whatever the thing parents whatever the thing might be depending on how old you are but no one 
I, you know, I've, I've interviewed like a hundred plus really successful people in my podcast. I've inter- interviewed so many others for the book, all the reading I've done about this. No one who succeeds on is 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 doing it because they're blaming the circumstances. Mm-hmm. In whatever situation people are in, they find a way to take control of the things they can control. And you can always control how you approach something. You can always control the process. You can you can always find a way to make it feel a little bit better than it currently is. Yeah, and you uh, in one of your recent YouTube videos talked about how you're making some pretty dramatic changes that. I'm just curious about sort of the connection between sort of the way you are restructuring your work and your life as a result of coming through the other side of writing this book, right? And I, I don't know, maybe the two are not in any way related. They feel related only because I just read your book and just watched this video. Um, but it, it did seem to me like you are certainly practicing what you preach here, so to speak, right? You are certainly sort of weaving the practical aspects of this book. And I want to touch on that in just a second, but into your own life. And I would, I'd love to just have our audience here. If they haven't watched the video, I'll link to it, but just kind of hear like where that has led you to today. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that I've always been, hmm, I guess, struggling with is this balance between doing what I enjoy and doing what makes money. And we're all faced with that decision at whatever stage of life we're at. Now, if you are at the point where you're stressed about paying your bills and you feel like you don't have enough money to support your family and all that kind of stuff, you don't have the luxury of saying, I'm just going to go part-time and do what I enjoy and spend more time on my hobbies. You've got to choose the option of, I have to make more money because you're supporting your family. But what I found is once you're beyond that point, like the people who have got more than the basics covered are still making that decision to pursue more money at the expense of their personal happiness and fulfillment and family life. And I was spending some time with some big shot entrepreneurs last week who have all sold companies for over $100 million. I was by far the brokest person in the group. <laughs> These guys are all like 10 to 100 times wealthier than I am. And all of them basically had run themselves into that position where they had focused on work at the expense of their family or at the expense of their relationships or at the expense of their health. And they told themselves they were doing it for the family. But like, the kids don't care if you're making 10 million or 11 million or 12 million. It makes no right. freaking difference to them. The kids want you to be there. And uh, all of these guys basically realized that, oh, okay, that's a good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> focus on health, focus on relationships, focus on fulfillment. And then also, uh, we, and then with those as our foundation, then yes, we can build our businesses to 100 million or whatever the thing might be. But I've kind of noticed that crossroads in myself. You know, I've got a business. It's a lifestyle business. I don't have to work too hard on it. I'm doing what I love. I'm making enough money. But I always feel the pull, the call of the siren to be like, oh, but I could make more. I could make another course. I could do speaking gigs. I could do a mastermind, a high ticket mastermind. There's, there's all these options for things that I could do to, to make more money. But I have, I, what I'm trying to do is to sort of actively decide if, if I wasn't concerned about making money, how would I actually choose to spend my time? And you know, would, I choose, would I spontaneously arrive at the conclusion that, yeah, the, the thing I really want to do for fulfillment is to build a bigger business? Probably not. I'd probably focus on my health, probably spend more time with my friends and family, probably visit my grandma more often, probably call my mom more often, spend more time on hobbies. I've been learning to play the guitar and sing. I'd probably work on that a little bit. Like I would have more of a balanced life. And up until this point, I've been going sort of full on with the business because that's what allowed me to essentially buy my financial freedom and it was, um, gave me the ability to quit my day job. But now that my business is already quite successful by, by my own standards, 
it doesn't it doesn't make sense to continue to focus on making more money, even though that's what society tells us we should be doing. If your business isn't growing, it's dying. And it's like, what are your growth goals for next year? And all of that crap, all of that, at least for me, I find it comes at the expense of personal fulfillment. And so I'm trying to find a way to balance the two. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a really valuable lesson for the audience of people that I write for, who are all founders, small business owners, who I have probably, I mean, the, the journey that they've taken may look a lot different than yours, but the steps along the way are the same, right? You go through a building phase, you go through a, I'm investing all of my resources plus some into this building this up. And then you get to a point where things seem to be working and you have to make a choice. Like what is the, either I have to like look to what's next or I have to self-evaluate and say, is this like, do I want to continue doing this? And at what pace and at what cost? And the cost part is, I think, really difficult for people because they don't think about that. And it seems as though like you're at that place where you're really thinking about like, what is the cost? And do I really want to continue to pay that price if for what benefit? And, and it's really interesting how you're measuring success, right? It's not just about how many more dollars you put in or how many more views on the YouTube video or how many more sponsors. It's more based on like, is this the person I want to keep being for the next five years or whatever? Yeah. Like we've all come across those studies that are like, you know, beyond a certain number, more money doesn't actually buy more happiness. And some studies- and it's a lot lower number than most people think. Yeah, exactly. Like in some of the studies, it's $75,000, yeah. but then, then it's like, you know, just for inflation and if you have a big, <laughs> big household and stuff. But there, there is a point beyond which more money doesn't actually buy you more happiness. And in fact, more money starts costing you happiness because to make money, you've got to work. And often the more you work, the less you focus on your health and your relationships and your family and your hobbies and those other things that lead to a fulfilling life. So I, I spend a lot of time trying to, like, I, I, I've increasingly found myself spending time with people who are way richer than I am, which is really, really nice because I can learn from them. People who have built huge businesses, people who are mega successful author, authors, like way, way more successful than me. And I always ask them this question of like, you know, all this money that you made, these extra millions, to what extent did they, did they make you more happy? And every single person has said, to be honest, <laughs> zero. And you're, everyone says this and then no one believes it. But when you get there, you realize, yeah, more money does not in fact buy more happiness. For a lot of these guys, more money has cost them happiness because it's, it's come at the expense of then stressing out about whether they're going to lose it, having to deal with like friends and family asking them for money and feeling bad about that. Like, it sounds like a very first world problem, but there are a lot of downsides to having more money. And I think I'm not saying don't chase money. I'm not saying don't try and make more money. Obviously, everyone's circumstances are different. But my whole thing for myself is recognizing the cost and recognizing that growing a business actually comes at a cost. And usually that cost is health, relationships, family, hobbies. Sometimes you decide it's a cost worth paying and sometimes you decide it's not. But at least if you're intentional about that, you can, you can make an informed decision. Yeah. So I have two, two more questions. We'll get back to the book in just a second with my last question. But the, you just said something that made me think about this because you obviously have a team of people who work with you. So the decisions that you make affect them, right? They don't just affect your life and your personal goals. And, and as, as you were describing kind of like the thought process, I imagine there are entrepreneurs or small business owners who are thinking, yes, I could make less money, but what if that means I have to pay less people, right? I have people who are depending, if I run a corner bakery and I have seven employees and I'm like, I, want, I'm, I don't want to grow to the second location, but it might mean I only have six employees. Like that's a real hard thing for people. And you have a probably larger team than most people would think. And I would, I would just love to hear sort of the brief version of like how you worked through what it would mean to them as well. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I don't want to pretend to have the answer here because thankfully <laughs> my business is not operating on the sort of margins where me deciding to make less videos results in people getting fired. Sure. Um, where thankfully the business is at a point where, you know, it's digital product, you know, it's not that many overheads, all, all that kind of stuff. But again, every, everything comes at a cost. And if someone feels like, you know what, I want to open that second store because I want to generate more employment for my local community. That is amazing. That's fantastic. But if it comes at the expense of their health and relationships, that's a, that's a cost that some people would want to pay and some people would not want to pay. Mm-hmm. What I would say, I could double the size of my team. I could go from 13 to 26. I do not want to do that. Yes, I'd be pro- providing employment for 13 more people, but absolutely screw that. <laughs> I would much <laughs> rather have a smaller team that's more tight-knit, leaner, higher margins, more flexibility, more profitability, rather than deal with the stress of having a bigger business. And every single entrepreneur I've ever spoken to has says that the more your team grows, the less fun you have and the more stressful it becomes. Everyone talks about, oh, you know, the good old days when we only had 15 or we only had 10 people or we only had five people. Those were the good old days. I have never met a single entrepreneur saying, oh man, it was so nice when I had a team of 50 or 100 people. Right. And so it's just different things. I fully respect people who want to provide employment for their community. Personally, that's not, uh, I'm I'm not willing to to pay the price to hire more people. Right. No, that's great. And my last question in the book, one of the things I really appreciated about it is, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that really you combined sort of theory with practice. You know, you have all these experiments in here, right? Like do this, try this thing. And I like that you call them experiments, right? Because the idea there is here's a thing you should just try. I don't, it may not be work for your situation, but find out like, whether it works and do this thing and then take that data and make a better decision about other things. But I, but that takes a lot of work, right? It's, it's one thing to just have a bunch of ideas and just put them down into a book and have the book be all sort of theory. But I think that there's a lot of value in the fact that you sort of make this relatable and make it practical for people. And so my question to you kind of, as we wrap up is like, what is your ultimate hope that people will take away from this book? That if they were to go through it, although I would be, surprised if anybody just reads it from start to finish because it's the kind of book that you just want to like hang on i gotta go here hang on i gotta go mm-hmm. back to that section but i would love to just sort of hear from you like somebody goes through this they 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 take the time to to sort of combine those two things the practice and the theory where do you where do you hope that they would end up yeah so what i'm really hoping people will take away from the book is two two main things if they only take away two things i would want it to be those two things Number one is the title, Feel Good Productivity, and just this acknowledgement that if you're trying to be more productive, find a way to feel good about the work that you are doing, because that will change your life. It will transform your work. It will reduce your stress. It will make you more productive, more creative, more energized. It will change everything. If you can focus on that being the North Star of like, how do I find a way to enjoy the process of doing my work and not just be fixated on the outcome? So that's thing number one. And thing number two, I would encourage, I would love for people to take away is the idea of running experiments on yourself. Everyone's productivity habits are different. Everyone has different things that allow them to enjoy work or be more energized by it. There are a few common principles, play, power, and people, which is what the first three chapters are about. But broadly, the way that we become more productive as individuals and as companies is by running experiments on ourselves and our teams and our businesses. And some of those experiments will work. We're in the midst of experimenting with a nine-day fortnight where every other Friday is a day off. We have found it makes people happier and it has no difference in productivity. So we are continuing to do it. It's great. But for some companies, a nine-day fortnight would, would not work. Some company, companies experiment with a four-day work week. It works for some. It doesn't work for some. It's kind of the same with your own personal productivity. 
I've got in the book, there are 54 actionable strategies. Initially, we had like 120, but the editor forced us to cut out them <laughs> because he was like, 54 is already too many. Let's like not overwhelm people with actionable advice that they could possibly take. But the reason I call them experiments is because I don't know what's going to help you be more productive. But I do know that here are some strategies that have worked for me, that have worked for people I've tried them out on, that are evidence-based. You know, some of them are based on case studies of famous people. Some of them are based on scientific studies. Whatever it is, find something that resonates with you and try it out and see if it works. And if you can take that kind of experimental approach to productivity or life advice or anything else, that's really the thing that will help you level up, as it were, rather than just sort of wholesale taking what someone else is telling you to do. Because like, realistically, no one knows your circumstances better than you do. All you can do is try these things out and, and see if they work. Yeah. And I think that's such a great place to leave it. I think that that is one of the most valuable aspects of this book is that it is a opportunity to sort of reevaluate your thoughts about productivity, but also sort of just the way you approach it. And, and I would definitely encourage anybody who's listening to this to get the book and to try some of these experiments. Um, and as, as you're listening to, to this interview, it's the day after Christmas, the book came out today. Where can people find it? Where should they go to get the copy of this book? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, well, you can check out the website, feelgoodproductivity.com. That's a pretty cool website. It's got lots of funky animations on it if you want to check it out. But it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Waterstones. Like, it's, it's available wherever you get books. Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So definitely, I would encourage you, you know, the holidays are almost over, but give yourself a late Christmas present. Get the book. Go through it. Take the time. And, and Ali, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I, I really appreciate it. Hopefully, a lot of people are going to be reading this book and uh, feeling better about productivity. Thanks, man. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely.